The Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. The eye is often touted as the most amazing and complex organ we possess. But around the world, about 40 million people are blind, and roughly six times that many have some kind of vision impairment. Furthermore, 80% of vision problems worldwide are often avoidable or even curable. Well, I'm Keith Martin. I'm the Ringland Anderson Professor of Ophthalmology in the University of Melbourne and uh, also the Managing Director of the Centre for Eye Research Australia. Professor Keith Martin isn't just any internationally renowned clinician scientist. He's on the ophthalmologist power list for 2019. Yes, they have a power list. Keith's passion is to develop innovative and creative approaches to prevent vision loss, restore sight and reduce the burden of blinding eye disease around the world. It's been a busy few months for Keith, his time occupied by World Glaucoma Week and the World Glaucoma Congress 2019 just held here in Melbourne. He took some time out to sit and chat with our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Keith, you made it to the ophthalmologist power list for 2019. What is an ophthalmologist power list? I, I think um, I wouldn't read too much into that. I mean, this is something that's done by one of the major uh, magazines that uh, publicises what's going on in ophthalmology. And they do this, uh, I think, for a bit of fun each year. Uh, they identify people who are uh, have been nominated by their peers as being influential within the field of ophthalmology. And uh, I just happened to make it onto that list this year as a as someone uh, as an emerging leader in um, in ophthalmology i guess that means i haven't emerged yet but i'm emerging you're currently the president of the world glaucoma association what exactly is glaucoma okay so glaucoma is a condition which causes gradual loss of vision over time and the common perception is that it's just related to high pressure in the eye and and that's what it is it's just high pressure in the eye but but really this is a condition which can occur irrespective of what the pressure is in the eye and the most important thing about diagnosing the condition is people often in the early stages don't know they've got it now if we can pick up the condition early then we can treat it effectively in most cases and so so what we're always trying to do is encourage people to be tested for glaucoma and this is a simple eye check that can be done by any optometrist in the community. It involves checking the peripheral vision because that's what gets affected first in glaucoma, looking carefully at the optic nerve, which we can see within the eye with special instruments, and also measuring the the pressure in the eye. Very simple check, very important, particularly if you have a family member affected with glaucoma, because this remains the leading cause of irreversible blindness worldwide. And yet if we get it early, we can usually treat it. How prevalent is it? Is it mainly an elderly person's disease? You're absolutely right that it's more common as we get older. And by the time we reach the age of 80, about 15% of us or more will have glaucoma. Um, So it gets more common after the age of 40. But I treat children who are born with forms of congenital glaucoma as well. That's very rare, um, but it can occur at, at any age. But yes, as we get older, it gets more common. Give us the stats. What is it worldwide? Well, I think the estimate in 2010 was around 60 million people affected um, with glaucoma. And that's due to rise to over 80 million by 2020. So, And that's because we're living longer. So as this is a condition which gets more common with age, the longer we live, the more likely we are to develop it. And so it's becoming more 
prevalent in the population. And more than four and a half million people are um, bilaterally blind, in other words, blind in both eyes due to the condition. So it's a, it's a big problem. That would cause the loss of independence, your well-being will plummet. This, this is it. And, and that's, it's a quality of life issue. Um, early in the disease, you may not know there's anything going on. As the disease comes on, the first thing you might notice is, is tripping over things, uh, elderly people having more, more falls. Uh, that might be what brings it to the attention that the vision isn't, isn't quite so good. And then it's the loss of the driving licence. We know that elderly people with glaucoma get out less. They have less social contact. Uh, they take less steps. Believe it or not, that's been measured with, with fitness bands and all the rest of it. So they just become more isolated over time. And so anything we can do to avoid that sort of quality of life effect of visual loss is, is really important. Keith, you're known for your passion to prevent vision loss, restore sight and reduce the burden of blinding eye diseases around the world. Now, you're clearly passionate about this because you've been heard to say that essentially in the next 10 years, you want to ensure there are treatments that not only stop the decline of vision, but also restore sight. Wow, that's a goal if I ever heard of one. <laughs> well, it is, but it's becoming very realistic and we're, we're already doing this. And if you look at what's happening in eye research, even locally within Melbourne, if you look at the Bionic Eye Project, for example, that might have sounded like science fiction 10 years ago where we put a chip into the eye um, that restores vision in people who were previously blind. This is already happening and uh, the next generation of these devices are going into patients now um, and this technology is only going to, to improve. If you look at what's happening in other fields as well, again, uh, my particular interest is in gene therapy and we're developing a gene therapy for glaucoma, but gene therapy is already being applied to other eye diseases uh, in other studies around the world and has been shown to restore vision in previously untreatable conditions. So so I think we're moving beyond the era where all we could do for these chronic degenerative diseases was, was slow things down. And we're now really talking about restoring function in a realistic way. Is glaucoma genetic? Is there a genetic component? Yes, there is. Um, but only a few people, or a small number of people with glaucoma have a single gene problem. In other words, just a, an inherited familial type of glaucoma. But if you look at the risk within people with an affected family member, if you have a first degree relative affected by glaucoma, in other words, your parent or a sibling was affected, your risk can be as high as one in four of developing the disease. So, so there is certainly a strong uh, inherited component to it. When you talk about gene therapy, what exactly do you mean? So gene therapy is a way of changing what cells do. And if you think about how we actually deliver gene therapy, we use viruses to do that. And, and, and that's because viruses are very good at pushing their genes into our cells. Every time we get a cold or the flu, what's happening is a virus is sticking to the outside of the cell and it's being taken up into the cell and changing what the cell does. And you think of it a little bit about it like a text message. So the virus contains some information and that information is taken up by the cell and the cell reads that message and does what it's told to do. And and what we do with gene therapy is we take that virus and we take out the bits that cause disease and we replace them with something that helps in a disease process. So that can either be replacing a missing gene or putting in a protective gene that is nourishing to the cell in some other way that helps it to survive 
injury. And you're talking about the nerve cells, the optic nerve. That's exactly right. So so the cells I'm most interested in in glaucoma are called retinal ganglion cells. So So these are the cells that connect the eye to the brain. So when light hits the eye, photoreceptors pick up that light and they signal through to these retinal ganglion cells that send the messages back to our brain. And so if we lose that cable that connects the eye to the brain, the picture quality degrades. So it's a bit like the cable that connects a camera to your computer. If that cable gets damaged over time, the picture quality gets worse. Now, you also talk about stem cell therapy. Is that the same thing or is that different? So that's different. Um, And so what we mean by stem cell therapy is actually using cells that we isolate either from uh, embryos or more commonly these days from the patient's own tissue. So we can do this from a skin sample. We can grow cells that don't just become new skin cells, but become all sorts of other different types of cell. And so we can push these cells down a particular route of differentiation to make the cells that we want to replace. So if we have a condition where we've lost photoreceptors within the eye, potentially we can make new photoreceptors and replace those. And we've been looking at whether we can do this with with retinal ganglion cells to replace them. So this is why you're thinking in 10 years' time we could restore vision because we're putting back that function that we lost. Yes, this is one of the ways that I think we can potentially restore vision. And again, this is not science fiction anymore. This is already being done in human clinical trials. So there are trials ongoing that replace what are called retinal pigment epithelial cells. These are support cells that help the photoreceptors in the eye to do what they do. Um, There are multiple clinical trials going on replacing these as a treatment for age-related macular degeneration, another very common cause of central visual loss in elderly people. So this is already being done, and there's potential to replace photoreceptors, other cell types within the eye. Now, you're a bit of an innovator. You started this work in Cambridge, and you even set up a company. So not only are you embracing the R, you're doing the R and the D. (laughs) Tell us about that. Well, that's been a a bit of a roller coaster ride as well, because this was not something I ever... uh, planned to do, but we realised if we were going to get this gene therapy through to the clinic, we were going to need a bigger investment than we can get with standard um, research grants. And so so the University of Cambridge uh, helped us to establish a spin-out company from the lab, uh, and that was supported by the Wellcome Trust in the UK and Innovate UK and a variety of other uh, funding sources, with the idea that we would um, develop something which could then be um, partnered by a, a big pharmaceutical company with the resources to actually take this through to the clinical trial stage. And so th- that's what we, we did. And we set up a company called uh, Quithera. Um, and to cut a long story short, over the last three years, we've developed what we think is a pretty good candidate for a gene therapy for glaucoma. And that was acquired last year um, by a large Japanese pharmaceutical company. So we're working in partnership with them now to plan the clinical trials that will hopefully get this treatment through to the clinic. So you've got a multi-pronged approach. You're doing gene therapy, you're doing stem cell therapy, but I've also heard you're kind of interested in treatments before those therapies hit because what is the current treatment for glaucoma? That's problematic too, isn't it? The current treatment for glaucoma, there are multiple different treatments for glaucoma, um, but they all have one thing in common. They all reduce the pressure in the eye. Um, And so be it using eye drops, very common, in glaucoma patients, or using a laser, or using surgery, 
All of the treatments that we currently have reduce pressure, and that's very effective for many of our patients. The problem is that about 10 to 15% of patients continue to deteriorate and lose vision to blindness in at least one eye, even with pressure reduction. And so so I guess the focus of what I do is dealing with that 10 to 15% and how we develop new treatments for them. Because it's, it's quite fiddly, isn't it, doing the drops, people don't do them, and, and it's just um, it's too hard. It's too hard. And and, yep. and that's a real problem when you have a disease which in its early phase is asymptomatic. If you have lost your central vision and you can see every day that your central vision is getting work worse, you're pretty motivated to come and get treatment. Mm. And so these patients with macular degeneration will rock up and have injections in their eye every month. Um, and, and they do it. And they turn up and they don't miss their appointments. Glaucoma patients where you don't actually realize there's a problem and somebody tells you you have to take drops for the rest of your life. You may do it for a bit then you may get out of the habit of doing it because you don't, you're not aware that you're actually losing anything. And that's a real real problem because part of the reason I think people get worse is because they're, they're not using the treatments effectively. We, we know at least half of the patients that we prescribe eye drops to don't use them. Yeah, um, it's a sinister disease because it's sort of like you can't see losing your sight, pun intended. Exactly. And, and there's also a misconception about what the visual loss that people experience is like. And and sometimes you see, and even online, if you look up glaucoma and you look at the pictures of what people experience, you'll often see this sort of tunnel vision with a black surround and people are only able to see a little patch in the middle and then everything around is 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 black. And that's not at all what glaucoma patients experience. So what happens is that it's like the picture gradually becomes lower resolution. So rather than having a high definition uh, megapixel image, as the retinal ganglion cells drop out, you lose pixels in the picture. But your brain's quite clever and what it does is it tries to fill in the gaps. And so so your brain is processing, trying to make up for what's missing in the image. And so it's making guesses and fooling you that everything's fine. And that's one of the problems when it comes to people knowing that there's a problem because they aren't aware of it because the computer does such a good job often when they're tired and uh, things fall apart a bit more and then they're more likely to trip over and fall and, and miss things. The eye isn't an isolated sort of ball in our head. It's connected to our brain. And the signals that go through the optic nerve, of course, is the critical pathway. But what's the other side of the eye? Well, the eye is part of the brain. And so the eye is the one part of the brain where we can actually watch what's happening in real time. We can see pathology in action. We can't do that with any other part of the brain. So it's an amazing way to study uh, some of the processes that occur in neurodegeneration, for example. And one example of this is one of the projects that we have ongoing at the University of Melbourne and the Centre for Eye Research Australia. We are looking at signs that we can see within the eye that are predictors of someone who will later develop Alzheimer's disease. Now, that's work that Peter van Weingarten is doing. And by using a very special camera, there are only a few of these cameras in the world, and it's been pioneered at uh, Syria and the University of Melbourne. Uh, by using this camera that's very sensitive to very subtle differences in colour, we can see changes within the retina that are predictive of Alzheimer's disease. And this is really important because if we can get in early with our treatments that modify this risk, potentially we can reduce the risk of patients developing Alzheimer's disease in the future. So this is an example of how observing the eye, and the eye is really the window on the brain, if you like, observing through the eye, we can predict something which is happening in the rest of the brain. 
and do something about it. Often when I have visual disturbances, because, you know, I've been working too hard because I love my job. Um, But sometimes I work too hard and I get that zebra thing happening in front of me, which I know is stress. But that's a brain thing, not an eye thing. Usually that's the case. And that's the the brain playing tricks on you. So the brain is constantly interpreting the information that's coming in from the eye. And sometimes it gets it wrong. And there are many different ways it can get it wrong. If you think of hallucinations that you see in the desert when you see an oasis, that's a case of the eye playing tricks on you. And there are all sorts of other tricks that it can play. What are some of the surprises you've encountered in your research that you didn't expect? I'm constantly surprised. And you talk about multi-pronged approach. And that's really because, you know, I don't feel we're smart enough to actually know what's going to work and what isn't. And so you need to actually try multiple approaches because you never really know with science what's going to happen. All you can do with science is ask the questions. And nature interprets those questions literally and gives you an answer. And sometimes that answer helps you in terms of developing a new treatment. And sometimes it just raises more questions um, and you end up, you know, following a, a different line that you initially intended to do. So so I guess the, you know, the multi-pronged sort of strategy falls from never really being sure what is going to be the most successful strategy. Because it's quite a risk to sort of spread your energy in different directions. I think that is one of the things in science that you have to make that calculation between, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket and actually, but I, I, I view it more as spreading the risk. Um, and and we always have in the lab a variety of different projects with a, a range of different risks. So we, we have some projects that we know will deliver data. And no matter what the data is, it'll be um, you know, potentially of, of interest. And then we've got higher risk projects that maybe may work or may fail. And if they fail, we don't get very much from them at all. And so so it's a case of balancing that risk across the um, the, the, the research, research sure. portfolio. In some ways, we've got to go down some garden paths and go, okay, not that way. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. But But I think one thing that you bring as a clinician scientist is to try and ask the questions that are relevant to the disease. And so in some branches of science, you may be particularly interested in a particular molecule or a pathway, and you may be, the focus of your research will be to follow that to its natural conclusion. And as a clinician scientist, we, we come at it the other way. Mm. Um, and we, we are only interested in a particular approach to the extent that it makes a difference in the disease that we're interested in. For example, when we started the stem cell work, there are two different ways you could have gone about that work. You could have tried to learn absolutely everything about a particular type of stem cell and, and exactly what it does and, and then think about applying that far down the line to a model of disease. We came about it completely the other way around. So we put some cells in the eye and see what happens and then we take it from there. If it, if it has a beneficial effect, then we're interested. And then we may want to learn more about the mechanism of how it's acting and what it's doing. If it doesn't do anything at all, then we move on. And and, and so the clinician scientist type experimental medicine approach does things the other way around, sometimes to traditional science. You've got a certain goal at the end as opposed to sort of curiosity-driven stuff, but you're also paying attention to odd results. That's right. The odd results are usually the ones that tell you most, and it's the things that don't work out the way you expect. When you try to unpick why that's happened, you often learn far more. And so so those are the results that are most fun. And those are the ones that frustrate our students and the rest of it because it didn't quite work out. And we're always saying, you know, actually, this could be far more interesting than the answer you were hoping for. I hope we're sitting here in 10 years time, Keith. Come back for a cup of tea <laughs> in the studio here and let's celebrate what happened in the last 10 years because I get a feeling we're getting there. I think we really are. And, you know, the eye is a fantastic organ to work on. Uh, we have better ways to assess the structure and the function of the eye than 
pretty much any other part of the body. So, so I can go into the clinic, not even into the research lab, into the clinic, and I can see individual photoreceptors within the living human eye of patients at cellular resolution with instruments that are in the, the clinic already. We can pick up responses to just a handful of photons of light in terms of the effect that that has on the eye. So we have an amazing ability to look at real biology in action. Um, when it comes to gene therapy approaches, in contrast to larger organs, we can hit with a single injection the large majority of the cells that we're interested in treating. Um, so we, we have you know a huge advantage working on the eye compared to some other branches of medicine. So Keith, what got you into the eye? What made you think as a medicine student, I want to do eye stuff? Ophthalmology, that's where I'm headed. My path into ophthalmology was slightly unconventional. So I, I, I was interested in neuroscience at university and I always thought I wanted to be a neurologist um, because I thought neurology had something to do with neuroscience. And I, I, I was with crushing disappointment that I realised it had very little to do with neuroscience back in those days. It was about sort of classifying funny walks and scratching people's feet with sticks and watching which way their toes went as a as a as a predictor and it didn't feel very very um related to the sort of neuroscience I was it wasn't very quantitative and you know things have moved on to to a degree but but I sort of I also missed the aspect of fixing stuff there weren't really so many treatments available and um I I liked the precision that I saw in ophthalmology so so I I came to realize that ophthalmology was a very nice mix of medicine and surgery um, and microsurgery at that. Um, I also, uh, having fallen into medicine, you know, in the way that you do in the UK f- at far too early a stage, you know, came to realise that I didn't actually particularly enjoy dealing with sick people all the time. I actually quite enjoyed dealing with people who were well. And uh, so that sort of limited my options slightly in, in medicine. And so I, I, I fell into ophthalmology being a bit miserable doing neurology and uh, uh, I went to stay with a friend who was doing ophthalmology. He seemed to be having a much better time than I was, and uh, and so I thought I'll give this a go for six months, and uh, and uh, here we are, quite a few years down the line. And so, what set you off on that path in science? There must have been something that inspired you or triggered you to go. Do you know what? I want to know how the world works. I think that's a. I call it the curse of curiosity. You know, you, you can have a much more straightforward, simple life if you just accept the treatments that are out there and apply them and uh, and get on with doing a good job in that regard. And I think you know, and that there's a there's a real place for doing that. But I've always been curious about how stuff works and always been a, a tinkerer and and enjoyed taking stuff to pieces. And uh, and and that's what we do with with biology. Really, we we're, we're taking things apart. We're sort of you know reverse engineering, trying to work out what's going on. And uh, again, it makes your life more complicated and trying to juggle that with being a practicing clinician and being a, a scientist and, and, and trying to organize other scientists as well is a, a lot to juggle. But I think it makes for a more interesting uh, career path if you're, if you're cursed with that sort of curiosity to wonder how things work. What sort of misconceptions do the public have about ophthalmology and eye health? Is there something that you often encounter that you think needs correcting? I think um, when it comes to eye health, one of the things that we find is that many people will go and see their optometrist if they have a problem, if they can't see what they want to be able to see or they, they notice their vision getting worse they will go and see their optometrist. And one of the messages we try to get across is actually it's really important to pick up some types of disease in the eye early that you have a regular check. And What are some of those diseases? Well, the there are telltale signs in the eye of many different diseases, 
clearly we've talked about glaucoma, and I'm particularly interested in that. But there are other signs, um, there are early signs, for example, of macular degeneration that you can see before the uh, manifestation of the disease. And, and that, at the early stage of the disease, might just be a case of saying to people, look, you know, you may have a more of a tendency to develop this, and if you notice things, it's important you get back to us quickly because we may be able to to treat it. Some of the work that's going on locally in that situation, um, using lasers to treat some forms of early macular degeneration, may give us the opportunity in the future to actually intervene earlier in the course of the disease and actually prevent people getting something that they were inevitably going to get down the line. So, so my message is that it's important to get tested regularly and as we get older you know most people should be getting a check at least by an optometrist uh, annually. Professor Keith Martin what's the best advice you've ever been given? Oh that's a difficult one. Um, I've been given lots of advice some of it welcome some of it not but uh, (laughs) I guess the best advice really is to follow what your passion is and don't try to game you know particularly we're talking to medical students don't try to game it in terms of what's going to be the job openings or whatever just do what you're interested in and and you're more likely to be successful if you're doing something that you really love compared to trying to force yourself down a route where you see there may be more openings and I think that's that's the piece of advice that I've stuck to. And also give out by the sounds of it. Well, I think so, yeah, I pass it along. <laughs> Profess, professor, uh, what would you like us to think about next time we walk past an optometrist? Well, I think um, that they are... Um, they don't. They're not just there to sell glasses, um, and that's that's the the first thing. Um, and their optometrists are are well trained to pick up other eye diseases. They can spot signs of of diabetes in the eye, for example, or uh, there are even signs of you know un, untreated high blood pressure, which can be manifest in the eye. Um, they can pick up glaucoma. They can pick up early signs of macular degeneration. They can pick up cataract. All these other things that can affect your vision and your your quality of life. So so I think that's the important thing. And also in terms of a plug for vision research, if you ask people what they are most scared of in life, and this has been done in multiple different studies, there are two things that come out repeatedly. Cancer and and going blind. Um, And they're usually quite close together, actually. People are very scared of losing their vision. And yet when you look at the research spend, we analysed this in the UK, the the amount of research money spent on vision research compared to cancer is 0.9% percent in the UK. And so I think one of the, the, the things that we're constantly facing is that vision research is, is well funded and there are many charities out there to support that. Actually, that's that's really not the case. And we have a real track record in vision research of de- delivering real progress on limited resources. One of the things that I'm emphasizing is how much more we could do if we had more um, resources, more people working on these these problems. Uh, blinding eye disease is still a major problem worldwide. We haven't solved this by any stretch of the imagination. We've made real progress, but there's a huge amount more that we could do with additional resources. Thanks for passing by. Thank you, Professor Keith Martin. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you to Professor Keith Martin, Ringland Anderson Chair of Ophthalmology and Managing Director of the Centre for Eye Research Australia, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on April 10, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. 
Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.